Do you fear the zombie uprising? Are you prepared to survive what's coming? If you listen very carefully, you might just make it out alive. This is Zompocalypse Now. I got blocked on Twitter by John M. Chow, the the guy who directed the Jim and the Holograms movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, but that's only that's only right and just. <laughs> I mean, all I did was for the last since 2015, uh, every few months, uh, go on his Twitter and tell him he'd never be forgiven and he shouldn't have a career. Some people need to hear that, and if they don't have friends that'll tell it to them, well, maybe they should. That's go what Twitter's them. for. Yeah. That's also what transdimensional uh, spaceships are for, mm-hmm. from what I understand. Yeah. From from the from the Lovecraft country tonight. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Transdimensional spaceships powered by the power of an Erica Badu Afro. It was so much everything I wanted. Okay, well, that's interesting. We should get into that. Hi, folks. Uh, this is Apocalypse Now, and I am Timothy Harvey. And I'm Dustin. And I'm Curtis. And we're going to have some discussions about the episode seven of Lovecraft Country. Uh, I, I am. Titled I am. I actually saw the, I, no, I, I noticed on accident, on accident, the title card today. <laughs> and I was like, ah, Barf. Now I know what this episode is called. <laughs> okay, this it was just I don't think it earned the left turn it took. That's my general statement about mm. the episode. Okay, why am you say that? Because it was written in a clunky way. Mm. It was it was everything was all so convenient. Not really, I mean this was it was written clunky because the story elements just kind of flopped into place. There was no subtlety or, or like nuance to it. It was all just, here's the next thing that happens. And here's the next thing that happens. And it, it went on like that on and on and on telling the story, uh, which I'm unclear on because I, this is one where you really got to watch it twice to understand it. And that's why okay. I'm glad the three of us are talking about it. All right, well let's let's get started. Yeah. Um we begin uh our adventure back in the Haversham's mansion as it burns down and uh and instead of Atticus this time it's Letty who's following out of the burning mansion. Yeah. Uh and she stops when she discovers that it is not just her, but also her giant pregnant belly. <laughs> yeah. That is coming down the hallway. And of course, then she bursts in the flames because everybody bursts in the flames. Uh, and she wakes up, and I think that it goes right into the last time we really saw Atticus, which is when he discovered that his initials in the strange language mean die. Yeah, and, which is which is dangerously close to numerology, right? Or or uh, uh, oh yeah, because Sammy Hagar is really into that, and that's really the only truly weird thing about him, is because you know if you add up all the numbers in fifty one fifty, you get twelve, and and twelve is the number of the blah blah, and yeah. it goes and it's got a one and a two in it, and two has two ones, so that's double. I don't understand how Atticus decided that that his initials equal die in this language is all all of a sudden anything but the biggest coincidence ever. Well, but look at it from his point of view, right? And he's got to be pretty susceptible to having this matter to him because he already has a little bit of this is all about me yeah. that he's struggling with <clears throat> that he's been called out on. And we've not we, we the show has not yet dissuaded him of that notion. Really, like Letty might say, "Oh, it's not all about you," but then the writers of this show have been like, 
Are you sure? <laughs> it's really. I okay. feel like it's probably all about Atticus. There's yeah. a whole lot of Atticus at the center of this. Yeah. So, yep. and it's just, it happens to be, he's looking for answers. And, and like you said, Curtis, numerology or any kind of translation like this, if you come in and this, we've seen this happen again and again and again, uh, a lot of academics have actually run into this over a long period of time. They go in expecting to find a thing. And when, as soon as they find the evidence of that, they stop mm-hmm. or it colors their entire perception. The guy who, the astronomer who looked at Mars and saw the canals, right? So we see this stuff and it kind of makes sense, you know, especially considering, you know, <laughs> Atticus has had a little bit of exposure to some crazy things. You could see how he might sit there and go, oh, yeah, it's all right. on me. Right. So he decides that they need to go to St. Louis to this auntie that he has or an auntie's best friend, something to figure out what's going on. But Letty, when they when they get to Hippolyta's garage to, to borrow Woody, not only is Hippolyta not in the mood, but also Ruby is there because... Oh, by the way, earlier uh, we discovered that that Will- William was a real dude, and that Christina is was trying to use him. It's it's all very complicated, and Ruby is not there for it, and so she decides she's going to go and stay with Hippolyta for a little while. It's not that complicated, okay? So <laughs> it's the story that Christina gives her, and this is Christina. So how much this is true is questionable. All of it. The story she gave. Ruby about William's relationship with the lodge and how he was betrayed and all that stuff. That's the story she says is true, but he died. And so did the other lady who's basically been the the body that Ruby's been wearing. And so she's kept them around so she could use their blood to make this potion. But what's interesting here about Ruby, Ruby's reaction is not, it's not a whole lot of, you betrayed me. It's a whole lot of, okay, now explain this craziness to me. Mm-hmm. There's, there's I, I'm, Ruby's just, well, but, she's rolling with this though. I mean, because I think the, I think that you have to get through the, okay, what, what now before you could get to <laughs> you betrayed me? Like if you're starting with you betray, you're not the person I thought you were and you're not, you're you're ignoring the uh, we've been you know siphoning the blood of these people so that we can change shape. Fair enough. Then you know I think your priorities are just a scooch off. I just I just appreciate the fact that she's she's not freaking out as much as she's going. Okay, now explain this to me. <laughs> now my my first one was like she goes and you fucked me as a man, and she was like I never lied to you, and I'm like. Except for all those times that you had sex with me as a man. Yeah, when when you completely deceived me by being a whole another person. Other than that, you've been completely <laughs> truthful. Oh yeah. yeah that's what I that's what I mean by clunky writing. That's a good example right there. See, but I actually this is this is a scene that didn't bother me. This I thought I really enjoyed this this scene. I thought the scene was good. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of clunkiness. Yes. Well, okay. So that that has all happened, and uh, when Attica, when Hippolyta is like, "I no, you are not taking Woody. I have got work to do. I'm leaving." Who knows where geograph- geographically she's going? Because I do. Because Kansas. I looked up those numbers. Oh. On on the internet, and I found that there ain't no way they're going to send this character to Kansas. And then they said Kansas, and I was like, "What?" And I know exactly where, just west of St. Joe, in extreme northeast Kansas, basically on a country road. That's great. I love that. <laughs> I uh, but but this 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 uh, we have some L.A. geography problems because Atticus has to go to St. Louis. Yeah, and which... he's got to take the bus there because there's no Woody. So he ends up talking to the little lady, and discovering that lady. She, that's the auntie's old lady roommate. 
Okay. And so he ends up talking to that old lady and seeing pictures and like finding out that the book of names is, is, has been uh, burned in a, a white supremacist attack, uh, which I don't believe for one second actually happened. No, it's oh, no, not. no, that the, bur- the book was burned. That's what I mean. Oh, right. Yeah. Not no. that the, the white supremacist attack happened. Right. I know that happened. That's real history. Anyway, so he sees this birthmark that he has the same as the auntie had. And so that freaks him out because it's all about Atticus. Meanwhile, at the same time, Ruby or Letty has discovered that Hippolyta had the orrery the whole time. She calls Atticus via plot contrivance so that he can find out and leave St. Louis and then drive to magically fly to Kansas Taking, on gossamer wings. Yeah, in, in, uh, about twice the speed of sound. <laughs> he has the advantage of arriving com- when the plot requires him to. And right. narrative causality is a powerful force, folks. I didn't have a problem with it. I was like, they had to get him there somewhere. And and only people in this particular flyover state are going to know where that is. And only really big dorks like me pause a video and go looking up numbers on the Google. But here's the problem with that. I think that anyone who has ever seen a map knows that Missouri is a state and that St. Louis is on this side of it, and Kansas is all the way on the other side of it. <laughs> it's Crosstown traffic. Our drive. Right. And I, this bothered me on the United States of Terra, which was the Diablo Cody show starring um, Brie Larson and, oh gosh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But she, they lived in Overland Park, and occasionally they would drive to St. Louis, and they, uh, it, it made it seem like it was just a nice country drive. And it was like, no. You're wrong. That's one of the very few things that will take me out of a show now, and it's very, very specific. Yeah. It's if they try and pretend that Missouri is a small state. Like If they- you got, look, if you got a movie that requires someone to cross Missouri, if you don't have two scenes where somebody without teeth is trying to get pills from you, then you ain't <laughs> doing it right. <laughs> Or, you know, stopping at a gas station while while across the street, Baptists uh, protest the porn shop. Yeah, I know. And they block the door, which is a pain in the dick. Or take a picture of, of license plates and send it to your mom. I mean, someone's mom. Not, not a specific your mom, right? Not a specific your mom. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So anyway, they uh, he gets there just in time to have to fight off the police. No, there was a lot. As soon as as soon as Hippolyta got to the to the, I don't know, abandoned water tank. What was yeah, that? Yeah, or it looked like an observatory. They, oh yeah, it was they, yeah because they had the shot of the telescope and then they had the thing down. Because you know, actually, that is the perfect place to build whatever machine that was, with all the dials and the and the knobs. And the weird thing in the middle that you had to put the special key in and then right. kind of kind of fiddle with it some. The mechanic <laughs> no nobody. I mean, she okay, they had like a little scene where she's sitting there and they have I don't know what in the hell inspired this wonderful piece of cinema, but all of the equations that are kind of floating around around her. Yeah. He's doing the math th- real thinking having think look on her face with you know pythagorean theorem and you know just stuff floating that was rule that was i have a picture of an abacus what the fuck was with that that was that was was to show us that she was doing the math she was doing the equations um okay all right. I, yeah, yeah, that part wasn't great, Curtis. It was, you know, but but so she gets- it just didn't get any better from there. It just got more and more ridiculous and unexplainable. I don't know. I feel I like I think that might be the point of Lovecraft. Hang on, this episode was goddamn genius. <laughs> See, I liked it. I thought <laughs> I, I liked all the like bouncing around 
her becoming new people. I honestly, I love. I, I thought that was really fun. I really do. They and I can't wait that. because she's gonna come back. Like I, 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 I have this feeling like Atticus is gonna show up back at home and be like, "I killed it, Hippolyta," and she's gonna come out of the kitchen and be like, "What? I'm not <laughs> killed. I'm right here." Also, by the way, I know everything. I'm not a transdimensional being now. Oops. <laughs> God dang. All she's got to do is look up and say, no, I'm Donald Trump. No. That's all she's got to do. She just, she could just imagine those words and it would be nonsense to her ears, but then she would be transported through purple portal color of space, by the way, purple. And Erica Badu. Oh yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. What was the name of, of that race, Tim, in the book? The sequence in the book is incredibly different. I mean, we're just talking uh, the very basic premise is established in that there is, she finds the Ori, she finds information about this abandoned observatory. The whole chapter on her, the, that whole segment, really dives into the fact that she's very, very smart. And she's always loved astronomy. She's always loved science. And just like in the episode, we'll get to this later, she set aside a large portion of what she loves for the life that she's leading, the life with George, being a mother, then some of the realities of the world that she lives in as a black woman in 1950s and growing up in the, in the 40s. And so there's you know, the 30s and 40s. So there's a lot of really kind of establishing who she is and just how much she is the war, the life she lives is sort of holding her back, but her internal, her internal life is very, very rich. And she's like, I said, she's super smart. She doesn't get a chance to show that in her day-to-day life, but she finds the Ori, she finds this information and she goes there. And the person who built the observatory is actually, if I, if I remember this right in the book is, or built the machine is the same guy who owned the house that Letty lives in now, that same evil scientist. Mm. And this was a different thing that he was doing. Oh yeah. So no, so you can see it's very, we're already very, very different from what we've seen already. When she gets there, she discovers that through science and magic, he's basically opened all these different portals to different worlds not different, not different realities like she was. She experiences in this episode again, jumping ahead, uh, but different actual worlds in the universe. She sort of tentatively explores some a little bit, and then finally she goes. She just goes through one of the doors and finds herself on this world, and it's kind of a death world. Things try to kill you, mm. and she's rescued by a woman who has been there for decades. And she is one of the household staff of the evil scientist. His son fell in love. His white son fell in love with one of the black maids and they ran off together. And the father was so angry that he basically took his, anyone who might've known where they might've been and exiled them to this world and said, you can come back when you tell me where they are. This is, the, I think, the mother of the girl. So th- then he never came back. So they were stuck there. Mm. And one by one, they all died. Well, there's technology on this world, and so she's been able to, to stay alive. Um, and she almost kills Hippolyta with a piece of alien tech. Uh, and... They, you know, it's, it's this Hippolyta becomes this intergalactic, uh, intergalactic explorer, you know, by going to this strange new world and meeting this lady and getting backstory to, you know, the, the Braithwaite's and some of the things that are going on that she didn't know, obviously, because the lady doesn't trust her. Mm. She, she's like, you can, you can leave and you should leave, but I, you know, don't, don't tell anybody I'm here. I can't go back because then he might find out where my, my, my daughter is. And she's like, okay, well that's, that's, I'm pretty sure he's dead. It doesn't matter. And so Hippolyta goes back through the portal and then 
discovers that the lady didn't trust her and sent her back with a piece of alien tech that was going to kill Hippolyta when she got back to Earth so that the secret would be kept. And that's when the police show up. Mm. And Hippolyta's like, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. Sorry about that. Took a wrong turn. And they don't believe her, of course. And they say, what's this? And they turn on the piece of alien tech and it promptly kills them. And Hippolyta is like, I'm going to go. But unfortunately, the comic book is left behind with the bodies of the dead police. And this, of course, will play out later in the story, which we all, which also occurs in this episode to also draw attention to Hippolyta and her family later. So, yeah, it's a very different version of the story. And that's one of the reasons I'm not sure how I feel about this episode, because part of me quite enjoys what they did this episode. But on the other hand, part of me also feels like they missed an opportunity to really lean into the fact that, that Hippolyta is this like really, really intelligent, scientific oriented person. They go into her backstory about how when she was younger, she would travel around when she was traveling around. She always stopped in at observatories and she was smart enough and new enough that in a time when being a, a, a black woman was definitely a disadvantage in the sciences, you know, as well as everywhere else, astronomers would sit there and go, you know what you're talking about. Come inside. And it was a really neat segment of the book, but very, very different than what we saw. But I liked it because it was a good, like a different, like the interpretation of her choosing these adventures. Mm Mm-hmm. Choosing to be these different people and, and taking what she's learned from the from them and becoming someone new. I liked that aspect. Like I'm very excited to find out what ha- I mean. I'm, God, I'm hoping that she doesn't. You know, just like I hope she's still the show because it never showed her coming back. And Atticus left her in bumfuck Kansas, and the police was coming. By by, dig- by digressing to the book, we've skipped over a huge chunk of what actually else happens to her. She does go through a bit of personal growth through all these experiences. She She's told, you can ima- just announce yourself. Who are you? And she goes, I'm a backup dancer for a lady. It's and not then, just any lady. That's Josephine Baker. She could have said, I'm Josephine Baker. And then she would have. I, had but to- she wouldn't have learned the same thing. But she also, at that point, she was she was just throwing something out because yeah. she also skipped over the fact that she's, she wakes up in this room and she doesn't know where she is. Then she keeps in, she encounters these apparently alien beings. She's like, let me out. You're not trapped. (laughs) And they keep repeating themselves, basically saying, you know, this isn't, this isn't a, this isn't a cell. This is, you're not trapped. Finally, she says when they're, when she's on her, she's on the ground, basically pinned down. I want to be a backup dancer for Josephine Baker. She's not, she's not active at that moment. She's not actively going, this is a goal. It's just a thing she's saying. Yeah. Well, I believe that. I believe that. But, you know, it reminds me that, that it's kind of a trope in movies where they want people to kind of laugh. I couldn't tell if that's what they were doing. The reaction is always in your wildest dreams. You, you, you're the assistant of someone. Yeah. I think it was a it was a thing that I saw in the office, and then I saw a couple times elsewhere. Execution not great. I'm actually on IMDb right now, looking up the names of the people in the art department who blew the props in this thing. Yeah, that that uh, that Hippolyta helmet was bad. Uh huh. Yeah, there were things, and I'm looking and and I'm looking at some of these guys and. You know, they don't have a lot of experience. I mean, they do. Their IMDb credits are pretty shallow. They don't go very deep. Um, The director of this episode, however, has a very long career uh, from the mid-80s on. She's been working a long time. Uh, Her name is Charlotte Sealing. I think that's S-I-E-L-I-N-G. I Mm -hmm. I don't have any problems with the direction of this episode. Hmm. I thought she could have intervened with some of the acting choices. That was all I thought. Maybe she did. Yeah. Maybe also remember, you know, no. 
it, there's a time frame that every episode has to fall into and editing yep. this is we you, we see this on the independent level we see it on the corporate level we see it in feature films we see it in tv where the editing you may have you make decisions and you lose scenes and you lose transitions and you use you can lose a second here and five seconds there that can actually make the story a lot richer so i mean it's it's an interesting set of experiences that she starts going through once she starts realizing that she's on a path where she can go to different places and learn different things as somebody of course who loves the production design angle the whole time she's spending with Josephine Baker in Paris just i mean it's it's very lush it's a gorgeous sequence it's mm-hmm. you know the it's a piece of history that if you're not familiar with Josephine Baker, you probably should be in a time when powerful black women in the U S that was an act. There was an active attempt to not have any powerful black women. She was out building her career and just being amazing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, well, defining what it meant to be a a, a female black entertainer to this day. Mm -hmm. I mean, Josephine Baker is an incredible example of, of, someone who went out and said, I'm just going to do what I want to do. She had to go to Europe to do it. And then to become the Amazon warrior, Hippolyta or Hippolyta. I I grew up calling her Hippolyta because I'm from the South and everybody's name is just phonetics. Well, she, uh, she has some experiences and she grows as a person and she learns a lot and she gets trained to be a warrior and which is great she kind of gets her ass kicked a lot at first and then she finds her power which i think is another chrysalis episode in this thing and uh how much how much fun is that well i i'm i'm very interested because because it's been slowly like like it really is atticus is is full of shit because it really isn't about him this one the one before it, the one before it, and the one before it, none of them have been about Atticus. They've all been about women of color and their experiences. Atticus has shown up. Women are running this shit. They are in charge of this series, and it does not hurt them at all. No. So well, that's, prob- that's probably why you, you, think you are getting that point of view. Yes. No, oh, no. Dog in the room. She's back. She's back. Crazy. <laughs> On one hand, I really, really like the fact that this is a, a voyage of personal discovery because she ends up talking to not George, obviously, because George is dead. Or is he? Uh, but at least the idea of George, an image of George. Mm-hmm. And they discuss... She tells him how she feels about her, how make the decisions she's made with her life to basically be the support for him, but not really be true to herself. And at least here, she gets to hear from him. He would support her if she needed to do what she needed to do for herself. Mm-hmm. And whether that's true or not from the real George, it's true enough. And, yeah. she know, and she knows this man. And, and honestly, considering that everything that we've seen of her relationship with George was that it was a loving, mutually respectful relationship, that her vision of George here is, at least in her own mind, a true vision of George. Right. So when he says those words, that he would support her, that he would, he, you know, that, that what she needs matters, it read to me as... As true as true is going to get in this situation. Yeah. It was, she's experiencing these things, and in the time that she's experiencing, they're real. And yeah. this, is, this is as real as George as you can have from someone who has died. So that was one of my favorite scenes of the episode. In the other places where it does feel a little bit clunky, this was not one of those scenes. This actually played really, really well for me. And again, coming back to the idea that we saw from the very beginning of this show is that this was a loving, really strong relationship. uh, Chemistry, man. This mm -hmm. was the, it's all came down to chemistry in this scene. She's kind of, 
I don't know if they've directed her to seem alone in the world without George. I don't know if that's on purpose. Well, I think that's some of it. I think that's the feeling that she made the choices that she made to be a wife and a mother and put aside the things that, that really mattered to her outside of that. Not, to, not that she didn't enjoy being a wife and mother. She she's, makes it clear that she did. But that wasn't all she was. I think they really have been trying to make her feel like she's she feels alone. Because she also knows that they've been lying to her about what really happened to George. She's yeah. lost the primary reason she changed so much of her own life for another person, even before their daughter came along. Um, but now, not only is he gone, but the people that she would trust to be honest with her in this situation, she knows they're lying to her. Yeah. And then she decides she's going to, you know, she's, she goes back to the, the Erica Badu aliens and they're like, you can stay here. And she's like, no, that's a nice thought. But I got. I have to go back. I have, you know, there. I have. I have a daughter. I have. There's. There's things I have to deal with, and I can't just walk away. Right. So she. So she says, despite having the universe open to her, time, everything, all relative, she could stay there for thirty-five years and go back on the day she left. But instead, she felt like, for her, that that was where she needed to be. Right. And I think that was the important thing is that she made that choice. That was the growth. That was the growth in the episode, I think. I mean, we're all in a situation, every single fucking one of us, listening, both of you guys, and also the three of us. Yeah. Um, we're all of us in a situation where we have to, despite everything that we want in our lives, we have to accept what's happening to us right now. Everyone is, it's happening to everyone at the same time. And it's never happened like this in my lifetime where we all have to decide, okay, we got, we, we can't really pretend anymore. It happens at different moments. Mine's happening this week, really. And uh, that, that this is, this is my life and this is what I have to accept. And I've been fighting that for a long time. So, it's actually not too bad because the hardest I work is doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, podcast. Thank you, you both of you, for listening. I'm going to do that joke until one of you guys laughs, and then I'll then I promise I'll stop. <laughs> it won't be it won't be today, says Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> uh but that's not all that happens in this episode. There's a very important scene that we have not touched on, uh, which is Atticus and his father. Oh, oh shit. Right. I totally called this. I called this like four times. Like four times. We uh, when Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Called it. I was really proud of myself for a few seconds. And <laughs> I had to, I got to relive that just now. That was thank you. You're welcome. I'm here to help. <laughs> So we open basically with getting Atticus, I'm sorry, uh, Montrose and Sammy having a domestic moment. The problem is that Montrose is really, really good at screwing things up. Yeah. <laughs> and he's really scared. He's scared to step out and be the same kind of person that Sammy is. Yeah, because Sammy is, as much as Sammy doesn't advertise, say, at the bar, right? The bar that he runs. Yeah. Everyone knows, but there's no like, you know, the Sammy's not going to show up in drag at the bar that he runs because yeah. that's just not going to work in the time that the time and place that Sammy's living. But he's still a lot more open and expressive of who he is than Montrose is going to allow himself to be right now. And this causes tension. Sammy, and- Sammy mentions the neighbors and Montrose is like, what? <laughs> <laughs> with the neighbors again why is it that i like that he's i like that this is you know when like why is it that every single time we try and do something like this that you know we end up talking about the neighbors he's just awful i mean montrose montrose is montrose awful. is not a good guy montrose <laughs> is not a good guy no when you look 
when you've made love all night and then you wake up in the morning and you bitch about every aspect of the breakfast that someone else made you bullshit you do that no sir no sir he's not a good companion to anyone at all no he's bad he knows he's bad that's why he doesn't want people to like him and that's interesting one of the things we talked about this before one of the things that makes montrose interesting is that you can actually watch and again it comes down to the actor you can actually watch him actively trying to want to feel better and and not you can watch him actively you know trying to have something with with Sammy who he on at least some level appears to actually love and yet he's terrible at this yeah. he wants to be a father to Atticus and protect him but he's terrible at this yeah and yet you can still watch Michael K Williams make this character I, I, I can't sympathize with Montrose. No. But I can sympathize with what Montrose is Re- going through. And what he represents, because what Montrose is, is he's basically all of the the toxic masculinity uh, that has pervas- is pervasive not only in black culture, but just in cultural in general. He He feels like he has to be the man. He has to be a man. He has to teach his son how to be a man. And that means very specific limited parameters of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's broken him because he can't force himself into that box. He's tried. He can't force his son into that box. He's tried, but all his entire, his entire personality is wrapped up in being in that box. It's not healthy, it's not safe, and it's broken his relationship with his son. It's all, might be in danger of breaking his relationship with Sammy, although Sammy seems to Sammy seems to be reacting a lot more like he's been through this before with him. Yeah, which is not a healthy relationship thing, by the way. Uh, but if you know. All, if, if Sammy can bring him around, good for Sammy, but... That can change him. Maybe. Probably not. Um, unfortunately, for Attic, for Montrose's peace of mind, um, Sammy leaves as Atticus and Letty walk up. And, and he's uh, all in the middle of a baby, baby, no, baby, no. He's all in the middle of that moment. That, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, sweetie, sweetie, sweetie. Sweetie, don't go. Oh, yeah. The only way it could have been more is if he had been like, I'm sorry, sexual partner with whom I have had sexual relations with in the most recent sexual past, as in just really right a few minutes ago, sex. Oh, here's my here's my son. Show him your nipples. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and then, of course, Atticus reacts. Okay. Badly. It, he yes. uses the F word, which shocked me, absolutely shocked me that they would that that was used on a television show. It was used it was used correctly and in context in, con- in context. So in fine, context. but it's but it still shocked me. But it's the same. So here's here's the thing that if the hearing the police call Atticus and Letty and George the N word in the first episode a lot, it was jarring. The, it's jarring and shocking, and we should be jarred and shocked. Especially, especially, hi there, three white guys talking about a, a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, about three, three middle-aged, we're all middle-aged. We three can't middle-aged forget. white guys talking about this show. But Atticus reacts in a way that is true to the world he was raised in and the world he lives in. Right, well, yeah. And that's something that, again, we're looking at um, as modern audience as a modern audience. And I'm fifty, guys. I'm I'm not, you know, 
I've definitely been through a couple, a few decades where words like that were tripping off comedian lips mm-hmm. on every comedy show in the in that you ever saw. Oh yeah, Eddie Murphy's Raw. Comedy is still comedy is still the last bastion of offense like that. It's but it forgivable. Was, it, was, it wasn't that long ago that. Well, I think it depends on where you're going. Like I, I don't think I could, I could hang out with Eli Roth because I feel like he's the kind of person who bandies around this particular word. And then pretends he's joking when he's really not. There's context like that. Yeah, you bet. Um, I think I could handle hanging out with you guys and you guys saying it or, you know, or whatever, a lot easier. And this is awkward for people, too. There's the things you say to your friends, Mm -hmm. the things that you say that you guys have decided within your friendship, within your friend group, are acceptable things to say to each other. That from the outside look really, really bad. You yeah. probably have this relationship with at least one of your friends, listeners, and tell me, tell me the truth. When you guys, when you guys listen to albums, do you, when singing along, do you like stop when there's an offensive word, like the N word or something like that? Like you know, if you're listening to straight out of Compton, that album, you know that that's on. There's yeah. going to be incidents, incidents where the N word is being bandied about. And if you're in your car thinking you're in a safe space, really, it's it's not. It's yeah. it's bad. I, it's hard to it's hard to justify. It was it's in the song. Well, it's just you know that's not a word you should do i didn't mean to get on a rant about the appropriate use of the n-word i i honestly if people want to sing every single lyric that's great because poetry has been written for thousands and thousands of years and and uh um, people have to say the entirety of it or the poem isn't recited correctly we're all terrible all of us every single person in the world awful just shitty kind of things you think about. How dare you? You should be ashamed of yourself. But you don't have to be because everybody's like this. We're all normal. Some people are filled with hatred and anger and violence, and that's what. And they use words like that to make people small. Some people walk up to their friends and say words like that to make them feel loved. You know, and so uh, the reason. I didn't really have a reason for bringing that up, but it come, it brings to mind this week, a filmmaker friend of mine was taken to task on Twitter, on Twitter for having fun little videos where she's singing and dancing to rap songs and reciting the lyrics as written. I never saw that happen. But this girl took such an offense to that that she thought that she should be totally canceled after having a very successful film, film premiere and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, one woman tearing another woman down with absolutely no evidence whatsoever that she presented. And I've followed this for a while. I thought that was interesting, man. Um, I really, let me, let me kind of try to bring this around a little bit. I like, I like the way this show thematically puts me in a place where I can relate to discrimination in a profound way. You know, mm-hmm. I can be there with these characters who don't look like me, but I'm not looking at myself at that moment. I'm feeling what they're feeling and going through what they're going through. And um, it's really profound. You end up with this incredibly uncomfortable scene. Not only is there the language that you that does jar you because you you haven't heard Atticus use this kind of vitriol. You've heard him yell at Montrose. You've heard him, you know, you know these two fight. But there's such there's such a mixture of emotions that are playing when when he's there's anger, there's sadness, there's a sense of betrayal. Did mom know? And Montrose says, Yes. And then it makes it even worse because then it's like 
but what does this mean? You know, it's completely. Atticus being the self-absorbed kind of semi-narcissist that he's been throughout the series so far is now feeling sorry for himself because he used to get beat up by a sissy. Yeah. Again, this is the world that he was raised to think in. This is the, these are things right. that he, this is a, a mindset that he was programmed to have. Okay. So yeah, he, he's reacting. His dad in a way, did that to him. Well, his, not only exactly. that, his dad did that to him, but the world around him, that was the world that he was just going to exist in. Mm-hmm. It's really, you know, this, this was how people reacted. You know, the idea here that, that Atticus is going to be enlightened and sympathetic to his father and not feel betrayed is unrealistic. He's reacting very much like you would expect him to actually react if you, you know, in this world that Atticus lives in. It's, it's one thing to accept that elder demons are coming through the walls of reality. But it's a totally different situation to be like, my dad's been gay this whole time. Yeah. I mean, one of them is, oh, God, I just have to deal with it. The other one is, oh, God, what, what does this mean? So it's it's a hard scene to watch. It's uh, they they both just acted the hell out of this scene. Yeah, that was uh, that was it was good and powerful. I really I really enjoyed how they ended this particular episode. I wonder where they're going with their relationship because we don't have that many episodes left in the show resolving it resolving where they are because we can't leave out the wrinkle here that it does lead one to wonder whether or not George is actually Atticus's father because I've been thinking that since day one there's been hints at that and and some of the things that George has said in the first first couple episodes and some of the ways that he's acted yeah, if Atticus takes after his dad, it's going to be George. Which also like. could play into the anger that Montrose has displayed towards Atticus, Atticus's whole life. Because yeah. if, if Montrose is very aware that George is Atticus's father, you know, there's, there's, all, kinds of, there's all kinds of emotions tied up in all of this. And it's just... Leaving aside, leaving aside the sense that you know, I don't know. There's just there's so much going on in in this emotional interaction here, and then you know, Letty over here trying to deal with a probably being pregnant, mm. and yeah, that was that was there weren't oh most definitely that, being they? pregnant. Oh yeah, like yeah, being super pregnant. duper pregnant about yeah. it. Oh yeah, he <laughs> he placed his seed with an iron spike. Yeah, it's this is this is interesting. There's I'm I thought this was a really, really powerful part of it. This part of the episode actually played stronger for me than Hippolyta going off and, and having her her path of discovery. I think I think it just really comes down to so much of this show is so well written all the time and really emotionally powerful that that really strong emotional sequence there hit me hit me stronger than a hippolytus storyline yeah and i felt it was difference in the quality of the writing and the dialogue of it because i don't know it's just the way i felt it's my stupid ass opinion is all i don't i can't back that shit up it's just the feeling i got well, conveniently, that's what this show kind of is and has always been, is, you know, Dustin and I spouting our opinions. Yeah. That's what we're good for. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, sometimes... Well, it's, not that I, it's not that I apologize for it, but I do want you to know that it is mine. I came up with it, and it is mine and what I did, too. Well, and it's the thing is, is that we all consume media for ourselves, That's true. And you take it in in your own way. I mean, there's going to be stuff that you're going to watch and I'm going to watch and we're going to see it very differently because, you know, something as simple that happened to me when I was 12 
or something that, you know, a relationship you had when you were 23. And we can, we're all going to be, this stuff's going to be filtered through. I watched that episode and I think to myself, you know, when, you know, my, my child who just turned 30, by the way, holy shit things that make you feel old uh is your kid turning 30 um god dang man you know my and and this is one of those language things that i still stumble over because of course i uh, i grew up a little bit you know you know my kid (laughs) my kid is non-binary you know queer non-binary my kid and i had a podcast for several episodes uh, but yes, family um, movie nightmare. It was very good. Yeah. So we, my my kid, I, I'm, I'm a, I like my kid. Um, but of course I, when Nikki told us said, this is, you know, this is who I am as a parent, you react to that in whatever way you're programmed to react to that. Mm-hmm. And luckily I grew up in, you know, a time when, Things were changing. I was a teenager in the 80s. I was in college in the 90s. I spent, you know, I I didn't leave the college town that I went to school in right after school. I didn't go back to Wichita, Kansas. I stayed in a place where people, you know, where, where I had black friends and Hispanic friends and Asian friends and gay friends and lesbian friends. And non-binary stuff wasn't, the, the, the terminology wasn't going on, you know, wasn't being used in the, in the 90s or in the early 90s. Uh, in my part of the world, but I was primed to accept older people, you know, my parents' age seemed to be struggling, you know, seemed to struggle with that. And so a lot of people my age struggle with that. My desire to shake people really, really, really hard when I see stuff online about pronouns in their bio, they're stupid. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> How hard is it to respect what somebody else wants to be called? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, My name again, context. If it's reasonable, that's fine. But I know that the both of you probably take me to task if I ask you guys to refer to me as something silly that you know that I would probably do. It depends, though, Curtis, because if you sat there and, and you really, really believe. Well, you're, if you're doing it as a joke, that's, that's a different thing. thing. Well, yeah, if you're trying to take the piss out of somebody or whatever, you know, that's just rude. It's all rudeness. And I know you guys would shut me down for that. Um, and I don't think I could convince anybody. Uh, I think everybody's figured out that I'm uh, just kind of a weenie. Dustin and I have been weenies for a long time. Anyway. Um, I'm male gender, but you can, I, you, but I prefer asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that's your pronoun yeah <laughs> fair enough so i just you know it, i watch a scene like this and i think it 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 i react to it as a father who doesn't go through that experience i mean it's it's not you know my experience with my kid is not remotely the same right but at the same time the the dynamic there can really really hits me in a certain way because it's I can see how that could have been could have been bad and and Dustin you you can speak to this a lot better than I can but coming out as a as a child to a parent as uh you know coming out to 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 friends and and I've yeah. been I've been on the side of being able to have when my friends have come out to me that it hasn't changed anything for me they're still my friend you know, there, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything, but being on that other side and then of course having Montrose, Montrose was not planning to tell his son. He had no intention of doing it. His fellow friend was like, you need to, you're probably going to have to, but uh, he was like, have to what? I don't know what you're talking about. That's kind of the vibe that didn't happen in the show. That's kind of the vibe I got, but can I tell you guys a story I've never told anyone before? Oh, please do just for ratings. But uh, this happened on the day that my brother, that I found out that my brother had died. Okay. He was, he, uh, he was either a murder or a suicide. And it happened early, early in the morning, like one, two o'clock in the morning while the whole town was just silent and asleep. And then I went to work the next morning, 
got the word, had a bunch of awkward moments with a bunch of people. And then later in that day, I was still working at the, my dad owned a meatpacking plant. I was still working there in high school. And so I went there with dad to kind of shut things down. So, you know, like the pipes wouldn't freeze and explode. And there was things that you had to do to keep the place from literally just blowing up or something. Place was interesting. Anyway, um, we were on the way from the front of the front of the building to the back to do something. And he, and he's walking next to me and we're both in this very strange and new kind of pain, you know? And he, he uh, looks at me and he goes, you aren't a faggot, are you? And I was like, I had, I looked up at him and I was just, I didn't know exactly what to say other than, no, I'm having, <laughs> I'm currently having sex with my girlfriend. Not right. I didn't have to say yeah. not right now because he was there, but um, that was a very strange experience. And I did not know that my dad felt that way about that sort of thing. I learned a lot about my dad that day. And one of them that he, it was that he was, incredibly homophobic and ready to disown me on the spot. If I said, yeah, dad, I'm gay. That's not telling the story for ratings. That's telling the story. That's, it's a real thing. I mean, I know, but I, I, I wouldn't even have talked about that unless, you know, we were, I mean, you kind of shared your experience and I just wanted to jump on that bandwagon because maybe I needed to tell that story. Well, maybe that's just it. You need, maybe you because need. I'm, I'm reminded of that moment every time I drive down the street in this town, you know, that's yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I have, I have things like that that have happened to me as well. Well, you, I have heard, you've shared some of your stories with me and I totally, your dad is a very, very, very conservative. You know, it happens. And, yeah, my dad is a very, very conservative man. And when I came out, when I when I started, this, when I decided it was time that I could not wait any longer, I was 26. And, you know, I had been living in St. Louis for, ye- for years. No, no sin. No sin at all, actually. Uh, very, very sinless uh, time hmm. of my life. And uh, so I... He's, he's made up for it since, folks. Yes. <laughs> I have made up for it since. Uh, but I had decided to tell my family. And so my dad at the time was working as a contractor in Iraq. He wasn't in the military. Um, he worked for um, uh, KBR, which if you... Uh, know anything about that, you know, that is the, that used to be Halliburton, which Mm. used to be the government's evil shadow corporation. Right. So he was working in, in Iraq for KBR uh, as a purchaser, which I always thought we like the whole family thought it was weird because it was like, uh, he was there like buying equipment. And it's like, why do you have to be there to buy the equipment? Like, can't you Mm. buy the equipment from, you know, home uh, but they were paying him. <laughs> Clearly not. They were paying him really, really well, like super well to be over yeah. there. So we well, were, he's got to be there yeah, to open sir. packages, and you know, right? Uh, no, he didn't. He he ordered like like dump trucks. He would order like seven, you know, seven hundred dump trucks to be brought to different parts of the country. Uh, they would be blown up by insurgents, and then he would order. 700 more dub trucks. Like, that's what that's what his job was. Um, so I came out, and then I uh, that was to my mother first, because she was the one who was there. And then I came out. Then when he got back, he took me uh, in the car to Ace Hardware, and we went into the uh, nuts and bolts aisle of Ace Hardware. And he was like, we're only going to talk about this this one time. And that's it. I never want to talk about this with you again. And so, like, in the Ace Hardware, we, like, you know, laid out 
what I thought our relationship was going to be like for the, you know, foreseeable rest of our lives. And, you know, like that we were never going to talk about, you know, gay subject matter or anything like that. But now it's weird because it's like we talk about it all the time. We have such a much stronger relationship. And, you know, he just wishes I would settle down, find myself a nice man and settle down. I honestly hope you find happiness in being uh, single because the alternative is a nightmare. Right. No, I agree with you. And <laughs> and I have. I just, When I decided to adopt, you know, this is a little, you know, like, you know, be prepare for sads, a little minor sads. Um, but when I decided that I was going to adopt, I essentially was like, well, here is a super good chance that I am never going to meet anybody. So, you know, what are your priorities? And so I am totally fine with being single. And for the most part, the life choices I've made, although this week made me really, really upset that we couldn't abort 13-year-olds. Well, extremely, extremely late term. You can do it in Australia. You can, but they use a different term. Yeah, I don't like that term. I've always maintained that abortion should be legal at the age of eighteen, and you just have a you just have a button that you push. Sit there and go, <laughs> uh, you know, um, you have not worked out the way that I had hoped for, and I am not paying for your college education. Beep, and they just go, and that's it. For some reason, I cannot convince people that this is a good idea. I'm not sure why. Yeah, it's not. It's not. And I'll tell you why. Because there would be no human race. uh, And I can say that with confidence after the week that I have had. You would have been on the button? Oh, yeah. Everybody would press the button. There'd be nobody left because the button would have been pressed. Probably. We'll have to see what they play, how this plays out in the remaining episodes because part of me wants to see Montrose and Atticus come to an understanding, but there's only three episodes left. That's not R- enough. Wrapping the, wrapping up this kind of thing in three episodes is going to be a challenge. It's, I mean, I'm not finding saying- finding resolution for any of it. There, it's just. It's all cosmic and beyond anyone's control. Even the racism, it's just, it's the, it's the world. And how that part of that theme of this show is going to have any kind of resolution, I just, I know it's probably not, and that kind of makes me sad. However the show ends, whatever happens to these characters once the episode is over, whatever future they have, they're still in the 1950s. It's still racist America. It's still, and, and, and no matter what, they now know that there are monsters. Yay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> we, we survived the show. Can't yeah. sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we're still hated by white racists, but other than that, everything's going to be fine. So really, yeah, it's, we're, no matter what, we're that's going to be the end of the show. I mean, when we get there, that's you know we we just have to accept that. <laughs> I've got it. I've got to make it to the Asia and try to find one of those demons to bring home, because twenty twenty. I mean, that's the next thing we need. Something like that. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know what that is. The, the, uh... I just. That episode got me thinking so on so many different fun little levels. It was, it was this episode will not because um, multiverses are not my favorite. The more grounded story was the one that had more more impact, and yeah, and yeah, some of yeah. that could be you know if I and this is an example where if I was and it's unfortunately we don't have a woman on our show. Because I'm curious as to whether or not uh, yes. a female viewer is going to react to that segment differently because it's speaking to 
experiences that women have more than men do. Certainly there's things in this, certainly there's things in this show which speak to experiences that black people have more often than white people do because certainly, you know, the, as a middle-aged white guy, I have not had to go through what a man of my age, uh, a black man of my age or any other race for that matter is going to have to go through. Um, you know, that the argument of privilege doesn't mean that I've had more money or opportunities in life necessarily. It can also mean that I just haven't had to deal with the other things that they've had to. Right. So, I mean, for, so, uh, a woman watching this episode might get a different feel out of it than any of us. I can't, I can't address that issue. It's not something I am qualified to talk about. It's an excellent point that you raise, but I afraid I can't illuminate it any further. All right. So there's a lot going on in relationships. There's a lot going on. We think in, in whatever Hippolyta is going to, when, if she's going to come back, and we have a lot going on in the... Oh, it's going to have to go on in the, in the next three episodes. So we'll just have to see what happens. So if you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed this episode of Lovecraft Country, let us know. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. If you didn't enjoy this episode, you can still find us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a comment. Uh, you can also We're still us- in all those places. We're, yeah. Can't stop us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and if you find the show on podcast.com or iTunes, you can leave us a rating. You can leave us a comment there as well. Ratings and comments do actually help other people find the show. So feel free to share the show. We'd love to get, you know, if you like the show, let your friends know. And um, we'll do this again in another week. We appreciate you guys listening. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you, Tim. And again, thank you folks for listening to us ramble on. We hope you'll join us again on our next episode of Zompocalypse Now. Zompocalypse Now is produced and recorded by Timothy Harvey, Dustin Adair, and Curtis Smith for Just Some Guy Productions. All rights reserved.